Father, this evening we just come to you. I speak your peace to every heart. My peace, I live with you. It's what you said, Lord. The psalmist says, be still. Know that I am God. I pray tonight we put aside everything else. All the concerns of life. All the worries of life. Everything at your feet. Teach us to be still in your presence. That we might hear your voice. What you have for us tonight, O oh Lord. For the entrance of your word brings light. And your word is life. We come for life. We have come for light. Speak to us this evening. For in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. For those of you who were in there, I hope you managed to listen to the message on the net. We continue where we stopped on uh, Sunday. I'll just give you a brief recap on what we looked on Sunday morning. It's how, like tomorrow is an event for which two young people were preparing for years. We prepare for so many events in life, from marriage to childbirth to jobs to a new home to all kinds of things we prepare. But none of those things are certain. There's no guarantee you could get married. There's no guarantee if you get married, you could have kids. There's no guarantee you could have a job and hold on to a job. There's no guarantee if you have a job, you could earn enough to buy a home. There's no guarantees. But there's one event that is guaranteed by God. One event. It's not something negative. It's something for God's children. Very positive. In Hebrews 9 and verse 27 says... 9 and verse 27. Yes, Sammy. As it is appointed, it's an appointment no one can miss unless you are there when he actually comes. No one can miss from Adam down to the last man. It's an appointment no one can miss. It's appointed for men to die once. So there goes every other idea about rebirth and migration of souls and all die once. And straight away, the next phase is judgment. So technically speaking, God is very clear. Nobody can prepare for death. Nobody can prepare for death because nobody knows when it comes. And all the preparations for people make for death is actually for who are alive. The one who is dead doesn't care where he's buried, what clothes he wears, what's the nature of the coffin. How many people were there for the procession? He doesn't care. It's the living who cares for all this. Okay, So you cannot actually prepare for death. But you can actually prepare for what follows death. It's judgment. And the entire purpose of the church for those people who are saved in Christ is to prepare for the judgment that will follow death. Amos to Israel will say, Prepare to meet your maker. O Israel, prepare to meet your maker. One of the ways we prepare to meet our maker 
is to know the judge. It's not the same in the world. In that world, we need to know the law. Nobody cares who the judge is. But in the kingdom of God, knowing the law is not enough because the law and the lawgiver are one. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. So it's not enough to know the word of God. We also need to know the God of the word. In Romans 14, verse 11 and 12, scripture says, It is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. Then, so then, each of us shall give account of himself to God. Everybody. Everybody, individually, personally, will give an account to God. In the gospel according to John, Jesus says this in John 5 verse 22. He says, the father judges no one. He won't judge anyone. All judgment has been committed to the son. Father in his wisdom, father in his wisdom has committed all judgment to the son. The only one who was man and who was God. He's committed it to the son. We also know from Jesus, he says on that day, he says, I will not judge you. The word you have heard will judge you. Okay? That's why God says, ignorance is a terrible thing. Ignorance is a terrible thing. He says, actually through the prophet Hosea, my people perish because of lack of knowledge. So one of the fundamental things when we gather in God's house, the teaching of the word is so that we acquire knowledge because we need knowledge to know how that day we will all stand before God and we can stand with clean hands and with a word that will, a work that will come through fire. But knowledge alone is not enough. We need understanding. Because we don't understand the scripture, then we cannot apply it. So scripture talks about knowledge, it talks about understanding, and with understanding we need to know how to apply it in daily situations, which is called wisdom. So these three put together, we reach the truth about any situation. And Jesus said, I am the truth. Every situation, people will have many opinions, but there is only one truth. And that truth is Jesus. Jesus said, I am the truth. That is the only power that can set us free in any situation. Jesus said, the truth will set you free. In John 17, 17, Jesus will pray and he will pray over us and his disciples saying, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify means set apart for a holy use. All God's children are positionally set apart for a holy use. And God says, sanctify them by your truth and your word is truth. In John 16, 13, he goes further and he says, when he, however, when he, the spirit of truth, that the Holy Spirit is called, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. Now the Holy Spirit here is called the Spirit of Truth. So there is the Word of Truth and there is the Spirit of Truth. Why is this important? Because the reason is, Paul will say in the letter to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 3.6 he says, He has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives Life. We need both. Without the letter, the spirit won't operate. But if you only have the letter of the law, it will kill. 
That's what happened when Moses comes. When Moses brings the law, it is the letter of the law and it kills. But when Jesus comes, he comes with grace and with truth. The spirit comes which grieves life. We don't want the letter alone. So John 1.17 says, For law was given through Moses, but grace... That's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's where the Spirit comes. And truth came through Jesus Christ. So we need both. If we don't know the letter of the law, the Spirit cannot help us in our situations. And one of, when, when we were classroom teachers before we came into ministry, one of the things fundamentally, but children don't do that. One of the fundamental things which we tell students for exams, how you prepare for exam is know your text. But kids don't do their text. They study the guides. So if they see an exam, in the exam they see a question paper and the words in it was never in the guide, they don't know what the answer is. The reason is they never knew their text. So if the spirit has to give us light into any situation, we need to know the text. Text. Every other book is fine, but this is the book. And millions upon millions of Christians just wade through life without realizing there is an appointment. And at the end of the appointment is there is an incredible judgment. And the judgment will be based upon how we allowed the spirit to operate on this text which we heard. And without the text, the spirit will not operate. That's what it's saying. Jesus came with grace and truth. This is important because in comparison to eternity, our life, the young man and the young lady who are going to get married, they may think like, you know, like Jacob, years were like just a few days. But this entire life in terms of eternity is like a few moments. That's what Paul says, momentary. James will say we are like vapor here today, gone tomorrow in the light of eternity. And eternity is what matters. And everything in life is a preparation for that day and that life. And eternity, there is no time. So we need to understand from scripture, what is that the God of all flesh? What is God looking for from us, his children? The the judgment for the people and the judgment for the church is different. The first thing is, scripture says, books are opened. We stand before Jesus, scripture says, books are opened. And then there is another book called the admission register. The book of life. The Lamb's book of life. If our name is in the Lamb's book of life, that judgment is different. If your name is not there in the Lamb's book of life, their judgment is different. It's a judgment of condemnation. If your name is in the book of life, then your judgment is for rewards or no rewards. Because the books are open. So the first thing is to see that our name is in the Lamb's book of life. And two, we saw on Sunday, if it is there, to see it is not blotted out. To one church, Jesus says, if you overcome, I will see your name is not bloated out. Meaning, do not take your salvation for granted. Never. That's why Paul will say, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. So we look at this judge. What is this judge looking for? Because we are not looking at the law. We are also looking at the judge. When we stand before God, what were you looking for me in life, O Lord? 
That's why Jesus said, Jesus put it in different, different ways. In one place, uh, he will say, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He says, this is the most important. In another place, Paul will say, we saw on Sunday in Galatians 5, 6, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters. Only one thing matters. Faith working through love. So when you put all these things together, we understand what is the priority for God, for us in the kingdom of God. Three times in the new covenant, God will say, my righteous shall live by faith. And in Hebrews 11, 6 scriptures will say, it is impossible to please God without faith. And we also, I'm just going through fundamentals before we get into the word. And then scripture says, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. So all these things are important because we need to please God. It is only possible through faith. Then the scary verse we saw on Sunday from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 1 to 3. Incredibly scary for those who know God's power in their lives. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. You're empty. Though I have the gift of prophecy, understand all mysteries, all knowledge, and though I have all faith so I could remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. Now, ministry of power. God says, you are nothing if you have no love. Then he says, sacrifice. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not love, it profits me nothing. Meaning, you can do all these things without love. And God says, on the day of judgment, it will mean nothing. All your works will be burned up by fire on that judgment day. You will come in just with your salvation alone. That's why I said, the way you prepare is by knowing what does God seek from us. So we need to find out, how do I please this God? How do I please this judge? We seek to know him. We seek to know his will so that we can do it which we know involves surrender each day. That's the battle we face. But tonight we are looking at another concept. These are primary concepts that will define all our eternity, whether you are in the book of life or not. Let us look at those who are in the book, whose names are in the book of life, and I pray all our names are in the book of life. Only if our names are there in the book of life when we read this, either from Genesis to Malachi or from Romans to Revelation, it will make sense. Otherwise, it's just information. For it is written for those who are in the kingdom. So we will see on a very hot, probably hot summer afternoon, a very tired savior and an ostracized woman cast out from our society is having a very animated conversation sitting beside a well in Samaria. We all know the story of the Samaritan woman. But this savior and this woman having a very interesting conversation. And of all topics, they are talking about worship. And you will see in that conversation, Jesus defines worship actually redefines what worship is. In John chapter 4, 20 to 24, the lady says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain 
nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is. When true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus tells us something over there. The Father is seeking for a set of people. The primary purpose of salvation is God is seeking for a set of people who will worship him. He's seeking worshippers. The primary call of a believer is to be a true worshipper. We will see the Samaritan woman confused worship with a place. Like we will say, where are we going? Oh, I'm going for the midweek worship service. He says, you worship something which you do not know, he said. How do we understand worship? How do we understand worship? Jesus said, true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth, for God is spirit. Worship is one of the most misunderstood words in the church. Not in the Bible. If you study the Bible, you will get it, what it means. But in the church, worship is one of the most misunderstood words. Worship comes from an English, ancient English word called worth-ship. Where we are proclaiming God's worth, his dignity, his honor. One of the tricks of the devil is not to replace the best with bad, but to replace the best with something that is good, so that we don't understand the difference. That's what he's telling the woman. You have restricted worship to a place. So we prepare for Sunday worship, we prepare for all kinds of worship, and we call the church also Sunday worship service. Jesus said worship is a lifestyle. It's not restricted to two hours in church. It is a life. The first time worship is used in the Bible is used by Abraham when he takes his son to Mount Moriah to offer him as a sacrifice. He tells the servant, stay here at the bottom of the mountain. I and my son will go up, worship the Lord and come back. The next time you hear about worship is before a wedding. When Eliezer has gone all the way to look for a bride for Rebecca, he prays and then exactly according to this prayer, the girl comes out, then he asks his question, it is according to his prayer, then he goes and asks the family, they also answer. So three times scripture will say that when he finds, he's successful in finding a girl, he worship Eric. Worship. Okay. Worship. We confuse worship with something which is actually not what the word talks about. Worship involves an entire, entire life. And scripture says, God is seeking worshippers. The last mention of worship is in the final chapter of the Bible in Revelation 22, when Jesus, the angel says, The Lord says, behold, I come quickly. John falls at his feet and he says, no, please, I am just like you, another creature. Worship only God. That's the last time worship is used in the Bible. 
and the only place worship is used with singing is only once in the bible in a psalm nowhere else in the bible is worship and singing used together okay so we confuse worship with singing those singing is part of worship so remember the two laws that govern everything when a lawyer asked jesus what is the great laws and jesus asked him what do you say he said love god with all your heart all your mind all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself we talk to call it as the two hinges on which a door hangs jesus says the entire law and the prophets hang on this two love god with all your heart and love god with love your neighbor as yourself okay the first law is worship the second law is fellowship but your worship should govern your fellowship and not your fellowship your worship the first law love god with all your heart should always determine law number 2 but in so many christians life what happens law number 2 determines law number 1 why do you go to that church because all my friends go there hello why do you go to this church because it's so close to my house we don't realize often we make our choices about how to worship god by law number 2 and not law number 1 that's where truth comes in that's where truth comes in but truth alone is not enough we'll look at worship tonight even a bad attitude will be unacceptable in worship scripture if you study carefully says worship is anything that we do that gives god pleasure anything you do if god is pleased he's happy that is worship if anything you and i do brings god glory that is worship and the true worshiper only one absolute true worshiper walked on earth all the days of his life that was jesus look at how jesus describes his walk in john 8 verse 29 he says he who sent me is with me reason the father has not left me alone for i always those do things that please say he says a lot of people says i never feel the presence of god simple thing do the things that please god you will always feel his presence He says father has never left me never left me why i choose to do the things that please him so jesus pleased god that was his act of worship everything he did he pleased god second thing he says towards the end i have glorified you on the earth i have finished the work which you have given to me and not only pleased you in my work i have also brought you glory by the way i have worked that's a true worshipper he brings god pleasure he brings god glory it is to that we are called god's children are called to bring god pleasure and god glory and jesus had an unbroken fellowship with the father like i said this should be the objective in our life and that's the reason we come to the church to study that's why about enoch the second person mentioned hebrews 11 nothing is mentioned in the bible other than the fact he walked with god 
He walked. His work is not mentioned at all. What did he do? We don't know. But we know this man brought glory and pleasure to God. In Genesis 5 scripture says, you know, walked with God and he was not for God took him. He was a true worshiper. He walked with God. He pleased God. He brought God glory and God said, I'm taking you. And Hebrews 11 verse 5 and 6 explains to us, by faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him for reason. Before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For everybody who is waiting for rapture, rather capture. Let me tell you, the first one who was taken alive was Enoch. And the reason he was taken alive because he pleased God. He was a worshiper all the days of his life from the time he knew God. He walked with him and he pleased him and God took him alive. Took him alive. Scripture does not say everybody will be raptured. He was the seventh from Adam and he was the only one taken. The other one who was taken alive was Elijah. And you will realize Elijah was separated from Elisha by fire. Chariots of fire and horses of fire. Fire separated them and took. So Enoch walked with God. He pleased God. Our lives ultimately has to please God and bring him glory. Tomorrow we will not talk about worship. Today we will talk about worship. Tomorrow we will talk about the closest relationship you have on earth, which is a man and his wife, which is fellowship. But today it's about worship. On earth, the closest relationship is marriage. But in the new covenant, because God is raising true worshippers, even marriage should arise out of worship and should not deflect worship. All married couples, marriage should not deflect worship. Marriage is basically about fellowship. Should not deflect. Marriage is rule number two, not rule number one. Therefore, in First Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, I want it to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his. He says, you see, he says, be very careful. Marriage can deflect your worship from pleasing God to pleasing man. So your marriage should be defined by your worship. If you, if you believe, I marry this person, and that person is going to take me further away from God. God says, be careful on that day. You will be asked, how did you worship me? To the woman he says, yeah, next one. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Even in marriage, worship should define fellowship. That's why God says, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever because it will affect your worship. Not fellowship. It doesn't affect your fellowship. It affects your worship. Jesus puts it this way. He puts it in a different way. In Matthew 19, he says, His disciples said to him, If such is the case of man with his wife, it is better not to marry. 
Eric, this is not for you, okay? Don't get upset, okay? Chill. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those whom it has been given. Then what he says, for there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, forcibly. Then there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Spiritually decided, I am a eunuch set apart for God. I'm not going to let anything deflect me from my worship. So even here, fellowship is put on the altar of worship. Paul will say through the spirit, okay, about worship. Paul will put it this way. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do. Suddenly, people are thinking, now how do I go home and eat? Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Eat or drink, such common denominators, everybody eats and drinks. But did we see that as an act of worship? Did we see that as an act of fellowship? I said the two laws, love God, love your neighbor. Did we see eating and drinking as an act of worship? Does this bring glory? Do we glorify God through this? We know from the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 1 verse 8, the first decision he made is about eating. Daniel purposed in his heart he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacy, nor with the wine which he drank. The first thing was an act of worship. I will not defile my body with what I eat or drink because it will affect my worship, my relationship with God. And what about fellowship? In Romans 14, scripture says, therefore let us pursue things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify one another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with Offense. It is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. He says, let your eating and drinking not deflect your worship or affect your fellowship. So worship and fellowship is more than conversation, more than singing. It is a life. It is a life. When it comes to work, Work is not worship, but work is an act of worship. How you prepare to do it and how you do it. In Ephesians chapter 6, this is what Paul says. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of heart as to Christ. All of tomorrow, maybe not, but Friday, everybody will go to work. Christ says, how do you go to work? Do you see this is your real boss? That when you go to your workplace, it's an act of worship. Not with eye service as men pleases, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. He says the way you work and the attitude of your heart. With goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he's a slave or free. God is our real employer. He says, did you see your work as an act of worship? We don't need supervisors. We don't need cameras. We don't need people to watch over us. Because we should know who we are serving. And it doesn't matter. Jesus could serve anyone to whom his father sent him. It could be a Samaritan woman 
A crippled man lying beside a pool for 38 years. A rich ruler. A demon possessed man. It didn't matter who it was. For him, his work was an act of worship. Joseph didn't need supervisors in Egypt. That's why scripture says God was with him because of the way he worked. The way he worked. We want God to intervene in our workplaces when there is trouble. But we don't want actually God to be with us at our workplace all the time because then he will convict us of all the coffee breaks we take and the conversations we have. But scripture says both in his workplace at the Potiphar's palace and at the prison, God was with him. And both his supervisors, honors Potiphar and the jail warden said, we need, don't need to supervise him. Because he looked at his work as an act of worship to God. Another thing, it's not just how you work. Scripture will talk about be excellent in what is good. Everybody goes to a workplace, you do one thing. Most of you do one thing. God says, be, try to be the best in what you do. To preachers, Paul will tell through Timothy in 2 Timothy, be diligent, Timothy, to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the voice. Why is there so much confusion in the churches? Because we have in Incredibly sloppy men of God who don't work hard on the word. They pick all their stuff from all the books and the internet and not from the text and not from the teacher, the spirit of God. You can use all of these people, but they are not the primary text. Sloppy workers. Paul is telling Timothy, be excellent. You need to be approved to God. Not to man. Man will say, what a wonderful preacher. He made me feel so good. Paul says, Timothy, that's not the point. You need to be approved to God. He's the final judge. Be the best you can be. The way you work and how you excel in your work. Because so many Christians, sadly, we have the word in Hindi. We have a lot of Hindi speaking people today. Kamchors. Honestly. It's a shame the way we work. The way we work. It's a shame to Christ because we do not see that our work is an act of worship. Even if it is something small that you do, nothing is small in the kingdom of God. Doesn't matter what your profession God has chosen for you. Like I said on Sunday, education is just a tool. Just a tool. This is the core text. Result is not in your hand. Effort is in our hand. Our problem is we want results without efforts. We want results without effort. There are no menial chores in heaven. Whatever you do, scripture says, do it for the glory of God. Martin Luther said, a handmaiden can milk cows to God's glory. And we would think, never think about milking cows as something great. But that's what Martin Luther said who began reformation. A maid can milk cows for God's glory. We know about Brother Lawrence, who wrote that incredible classic. Yeah? He was just a monk. And he was, all he did was wash dishes. But he found his joy 
in worshipping God, in washing the dishes. That was his job. And from those experiences, he wrote a book. And 400 years later, still thousands and thousands of men and women read and find a closeness with God. He said this, We ought not to be weary of doing little things for the love of God, who regards not the greatness of the work, but the love with which it is performed. Be excellent. Do it because you love him. And do it in love. That's where the next thing comes. The next thing Jesus tells the woman in John 4 is, God is spirit. So, we need to worship him in spirit. Worship him in spirit. Now, it's not capital S. It is small s. God is spirit. And we have to worship him in spirit. And it's very important what Jesus is saying. In the spirit. Meaning, God says, your attitude matters. You may be an excellent worker in your workplace, but your attitude might stink. God says, the spirit with which you work. Because why? Hebrews 4 says this in 12 and 13. The word of God is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit of the joints and the marrow is the discerner of what? The thoughts and the intents of the heart. Everything is laid bare. Your supervisor or your teacher, your prof is only able to see your outside work. But God is watching your spirit. The attitude with which we work. He sees all that we can hide from man. What cannot be hidden from God. God says, if you want to worship me, you have to worship me in your spirit. That hidden part has to be right. Meaning, if someone is bitter or angry or stubborn or rebellious and can add many, you cannot worship God in the spirit. It is unacceptable. That's why the first question after an act of work or worship, God asks outside the garden is, Why are you angry? Here you are worshipping. And you are angry. Did Abel see he was angry? No. Abel saw Anna is standing here. Baya is standing here. He had no clue. He must have been even smiling. But Jesus looked straight into Cain's heart and said, Why are you angry? God says, anger, your attitude stinks. It's not acceptable in worship. It can be completely hidden from the eyes of man. Maybe successfully for years together, like Ahitophel did in Jerusalem. Successfully hidden. Nobody had a clue what he had in his heart, but his work outside was excellent. To the point people thought when he gave counsel, God was speaking. But his heart, nobody saw. God said, you cannot worship me like that. Your spirit matters. Listen to what Paul tells to the Colossian church. He says, bond servants, again, like you told the Ephesians, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in the sincerity of heart. Your heart matters. Your employer won't see your heart. He only sees your work. But God is looking at your heart. Whatever you do, do it 
Let it come from your heart. Do it cheerfully. Do it heartily. God doesn't like grumpy people in workplaces because he says it's not worship. It mars worship. Let there be singleness because you're working unto the Lord and not to men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance for you serve the Lord. Because on that day you will say, Lord, I did all this. He said, yeah. Such a terrible attitude you had in your workplace. So I cannot reward you. Lord, I did all this. I have all my resumes, all my trophies, my company gave God. Is that you already got your reward on earth? That was eye service. But I am going to judge your heart. Your heart was not right. Our spirit has to be right. So it doesn't matter what we may go through in life. Our work is towards God. And God is always good. We say in church, God is good. Everybody says, then why are you grumpy? No, but my husband is not good. But I thought you were serving God and not your husband. No, my boss, I thought you were serving God and not your boss. Suddenly we realize, you know, who we were serving. And their attitude affected us when God says worship is serving God in all situations because he's always good and he's always worthy to be praised. Because we are people who have read the end of the book. We know how the story ends. That's why the words of Habakkuk are so powerful. Habakkuk's time, everything is looking bleak. And depressing. In use American English, Habakkuk would say, life sucks. But look at what he actually says. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the wine. Though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food. Though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will Joy in the God of my salvation. Everything is failed. They said that doesn't need me to have a nasty attitude. I am still going to rejoice. I still am going to sing. I still am going to glorify God. It's not going to affect my spirit. It's not going to affect my spirit. That's why for those who are on the GDC WhatsApp group, you get the daily readings from the underground persecuted churches around the world and you see their attitude. Their attitude do not stink. They are in chains, they are put in containers, they are in underground prisons, but you will see them serving God cheerfully where finally they pres- their, their captors, their prison wardens and security guards ultimately come to know Christ by just seeing the way these people work for them, it was worshipping Christ and they are okay with it. Not only okay, they do it heartily. That's why about David, God says, that man guarded his spirit. Always guarded his spirit. You know, Saul chased David for 10 years at least. 10 years. But he never let that affect his spirit. Never let that affect his spirit. When it talks about love, I will tell you, this is connected with this. Most of us do not even know what love is because for us, love is picked up from songs, music, 
movies, books, Mills and Boone, Barbara Cartland, all that. That's not love. Love is defined by what God is because God is love and love is shown by God. First Corinthians 13, one, only one. Scripture says, love suffers long and is kind. You don't see that in movies. Love suffers long and is kind. It's an incredibly unjust world we live in. And it will only get worse as each day passes by. And we will suffer if we choose to love. But God says, be kind. Be kind. And we don't understand this, what Jesus is actually talking about. Okay, Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just as on the under. Actually till 48. So here talks about a different kind of a love. Can I have the next three verses please? Actually gave till 48. For if you love those who love you. What reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same? If you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. Especially in India, let me explain to you. When we think about God says love your enemies. And the first thing when we think about it, oh enemies are those who are burning our churches. And persecuting Christians. No. Do you know them? Do you recognize any face? Do you know their names? They are not our enemies. Now, when you think about enemy, just think in your mind, the first face comes whom you don't like, the person you don't actually like. Maybe in your office or in your family. That's your enemy. God says, love them. They are the only ones who have the capacity to make you suffer. The fellow who puts a saffron flag on some church in North India doesn't make you suffer. The fellow who is in your house every day or in your office has a capacity to make you suffer. And God says, be kind. Be kind. Be kind to them. That's the test. Once we actually dislike, God didn't say, you have to like everybody. He said, you have to love everybody. The one you cannot stand. God says, can you be kind to them? David was to Saul. Saul didn't like David. Saul chased David all the days of his life. But every opportunity David got to harm Saul, he was kind. He suffered long under Saul, but he was always kind to Saul. And he was kind even after Saul's death. Once he is king and in control of everything, one of his first statements is, Is anybody left from Saul's house to whom I can show some kindness? That's what God is talking about. Can you be kind to your maidservant, all the ammas here? Those who come late. Oh, my maid, she makes me suffer. Every day I am late. God says, can you be kind? Because you don't know her story. You can deal with issues without being unkind. God is always kind. That's what scripture says. His rain falls upon the wicked 
and the righteous. He doesn't kill the wicked. He says, only rain fall, only where the believers are fall, staying, okay? Only their paddy field should be green. He doesn't, it's everybody. He's kind to everybody. God says, can we be kind? He was even kind to Absalom, his son who overthrew him and humiliated him. No king will take something like that who rebels and chases him out of the city and takes over the throne. Look at his words. The king had commanded Job, Abishai and Etai saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave the captain's orders concerning Absalom. Be kind. He's taken my throne. He's taken my city. He's humiliated me by taking ten of my wives. Be kind to him. For my sake. See there are many many excellent workers in the kingdom of God and in the world. But many of them have a very bad temperament. Very bad temperament. The spirit is not right. That's why in First Peter chapter 3 scripture says, What is of incredible value in God's sight. That hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and ever quiet spirit. Which is very precious in the sight of God. Very precious. Very precious. That's why it says true worshippers have to worship God in spirit. And not just in truth alone. In spirit. In spirit. Cain was angry. Naomi was bitter. King Saul was stubborn. Absalom was rebellious. See all these people? All this was in their spirit. Absalom was a rebel who covered it up very well. As such, he had incredible looks, flawless complexion, unbelievable hair. I mean, he was, I mean, there were no advertisements those days. Otherwise, he would have been model number one. Absalom. And you know, his heart, nobody saw. Do you know how he did? So it was whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand, take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted towards all Israel who came to the king for judgment. Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. The people, as such is a good looking dude. On such he's so nice with everybody, the king's son and his stole. But in his heart, he doesn't care for any one of them. All he wants is the throne. Outward actions are fantastic. Heart is a different matter. And God says, you have to worship me in the spirit. If your spirit is not right, then it is not acceptable. God didn't receive any one of these people. Cain was angry, therefore he wandered all his life and went into darkness. Naomi was bitter, so even though, who was the kinsman redeemer? Boss was the kinsman redeemer, her kinsman redeemer, because she was bitter, God overlooked her and picked a Moabite girl who had a meek and a gentle spirit. Kingdom was stripped from Saul because he was stubborn and his end, his stubborn head was pinned on a Gentile wall. Absalom's end, he was hanging there between heaven and earth. His head is caught in the tree or rather his hair is caught in the tree. Matthew Henry very poetically says this. He hung between heaven and earth, unworthy of either. Earth would not keep him, heaven would not take him. Hell therefore opened a mouth to receive him. Because spirit was not right. 
And God says, true worshippers will worship me in spirit. Watch your spirit. Whatever job you do, whatever job you do, whatever it is, God says, watch your spirit because I'm watching your spirit. And then worship in truth. Worship in truth. You know what it means? If somebody were to come and tell me, Pastor James is the best cricketer I have met in the world, should I get flattered? Is that true? It's not true, sorry. You don't have to be sorry, it is true. <laughs> okay. When you say Jesus is the Lord of my life, is it true? Is it true? When you say Jesus is the Lord of my life, is it true? God says you have to worship me in spirit, good attitude, and also in truth. So God, can you really be honest before God and says, Lord, you know what? I want you to be the Lord of my life. Most of my life, I'm not letting you in. God says, when you come and sing all these incredible songs, I surrender all. God says, is it true? You're worshipping. But is it true? Is our worship true? God is not saying we all become that in one day. But God says, be true, be honest. That's why he's looking at two people who are praying and one is a man who's giving God his testimony. Lord, I am not like him. 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 The other guy who doesn't even lift his head, he says, I am like this. I am like that. God says, you know what? That guy is true. Yet he has nothing, one good thing to say about himself, but he says he's true. He's true. We think when we come to God, it's like we're going to a manager in our office and say, Sir, see, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did, did, did this. This is the way we go to God. God says, no, you're not true. Just be true. So many Christians, sadly, around the world, struggle with this. Look at what Jesus said in John, Matthew 15. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship. They worship. Their worship is vain. It's not true. Why? Teaching the doctrines, the commandments as doctrine. Treating as doctrines the commandments of men. So many things, so many churches follow. It's got nothing to do with the word of God. And they use those commands to worship God. They say, worship is vain. It's not true. It's not true. It's not true. Even worship, there are many worship leaders here. So many worship leaders here today. Worship leaders, when they worship, they say a lot of things. Is it true? Is it true? Does it stand the word of God? God is not looking for perfection. God is looking for honesty. He's looking for honest people. And that man, the, the tax collector was very honest. And God says, you know, you go in peace. You're justified. Because I'm looking for people who are true. 
true. Because what am I looking for? I'm looking for people who will worship me. True worshippers in their workplace. True worshippers at home. True worshippers at church. Every place in their spirit. And when it comes to the word, they are true. Many of the things which we believe, are they true? Are they true? Because the problem is so many things. The problem with today's believers, the past 50 years believers, Christians, I'm talking about believers. Their faith is generated from books other than the Bible. 50 years back, there were no books, hardly anything available. And if it were available, they were really good because they were written by men of God. But today, it's so much available. Most people have no clue who these people are. When you read Watchmen Nee, when you read uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, when you read C.S. Lewis, when you read all these greats, you know who they are. You know who they are. When you read, you know this man and this book, they are one. Today we don't know. And we do not test it with the word. And we take it and we believe it is true. And God says it is not true. God says it is not true. Everything has to be tested. Test is what the Thessalonians 5.21. He will say. Test all things. Everything has to be tested. Everything has to be tested. Everything. Anything you hear has to be tested with this. And for that to be tested, you need to know your text well. well. That's what the scripture says. Those who are interested in the text... What does John say? The anointing will teach you. Those who are not interested in the text, anointing doesn't teach you. The anointing is not for the interpretation of your best life now, written by Joy Austin. No, the anointing is for the Bible. It is for the Bible. The anointing is for those who are truly searching the word to find the God of the word. It's anointing is for them. The scripture says the anointing will teach you and you can be confident. You don't have to be ashamed. On the day of judgment, you can be absolutely sure because you have been taught and your spirit was right. The anointing is not for other stuff. When we hear stuff, we need to test it with this. We need to test it with this because only thing over and over and over Jesus wants in the last days is about deception. And deception comes, people are deceived Only because they do not know the truth. Those who know the truth cannot be deceived. The only way you can guard your heart against deception is not by studying what is false, but by studying what is true. You see a 2000 rupee note, I see a 2000, they look the same. But the banker who is sitting over there, when he is counting, he suddenly stops. And he takes it out. Why did he? Because he has been counting all his life. When one doesn't feel like the others, he knows it is fake. He has, he has experienced the true one for years and years together. When one fake thing touches his skin, he's able to know the difference. Then he takes the ultraviolet and says, this is gone. And your money is gone because he doesn't give it back. We know, we guard ourselves by studying the truth over and over and over and over again so that God teaches it to us. So that when the fake comes, it doesn't matter how close it is to the truth. It is written. 
the devil told jesus it is written jump and he shall jesus said you know what it is also written most of us if the devil we wouldn't even know it was the devil where to say it is written we'll say hallelujah lord i got my word for today god says hallelujah son you did not know my word today we wouldn't even know because we do not know the text we don't know the text why is this is important because this life is just like a vapor one day eternity begins and we don't realize all of us are carrying one text that will define eternity for all of us this is the book that will dictate it is said on that day i will not judge you i will not judge you no when let's say peter peter you are just an example okay peter standing before god about to give an account suddenly among many books peter's bible will also land up there and that bible will be open or very new peter how long did you have it 20 years oh some pages haven't been opened at all do you have any defense your book is speaking suddenly he realizes this book has a voice and that book speaks Yes Lord I was with him all these years he never opened it he brought it dutifully to church every year to show everybody else but when he went home he never opened me he never read me he never asked you lord what does this mean he never asked you lord read me lord explain scripture says the word of god is a mirror where you really see who you are it shows you he never did any of those things so lord that's what revelation 20 says books will be opened books will be opened you could do the absolutely the right thing with the wrong spirit it's not worship that's why jesus told about the pharisees learn from them but do not be like them learn from them they are fantastic teachers of the word god said learn from them the spirit is totally messed up don't be like them naomi's spirit is absolutely bitter but she knew the word ruth learn from mummy what should i do do this do this do this do this do this but she did not take her spirit listen to her word god redeemed her you could do the exact right thing and your spirit could be wrong it's not acceptable to god your spirit could be absolutely right and you could do the wrong thing because you did not know the word absolutely look at david oh man this guy loves god all the psalms 70 76 psalms half of them written by this worshipper and he's now king and he's got one desire to bring the ark to the city he has a gala celebration he 30000 soldiers new cart oxen everything the ark is coming in a great procession to the city of jerusalem people are singing dancing everything is everybody is happy except god except god is there anything wrong with his spirit nothing absolutely clear spirit then scripture says the oxen stumbled the ark slipped Uzzah put forward his hand. Uzzah is dead. David doesn't know what happens. Then he inquires and found out. 
That is not the way to take the ark. God has said very clearly in the word, my ark shall be carried on the shoulders of the anointed priest, nobody else. Your spirit was good, but your ways was not according to the word. Therefore, your worship is not acceptable. Are we getting the picture? So God says, put this true. God is looking for a set of true worshippers who will worship God in the spirit and in truth. So test everything, like we saw in Thessalonians. Test everything. It's a close. Acts chapter 17 and verse 11. This is who? Bereans. If you need to understand how good the Bereans were, you need to read First Thessalonians to understand how great the Thessalonians were. Paul will wax eloquently about Thessalonians. Oh my gosh, what a church, what a church, what a church, what a church, what a church. And then he says Bereans were better than them. Why? They were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness. Not only that, they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Think about it. Paul is going to Berea. He's preaching the gospel. And the Bereans are sitting over there, are Jews. They don't have the new covenant. It's not even being given. They have only the old covenant. They have only the old testament. Nobody has personal copies like we have so many personal copies which we don't even open. Nobody has. The synagogue may have a scroll. One or two rich people has a scroll. But scripture says daily they heard the message. And they gathered. Came back. Looked at the old testament saying he's preaching the new covenant. Does it tally with the old covenant? They searched before they received it. And he said you know what? They are fair-minded. They tested. They tested everything. Do we? Whichever church you are from, you go to, did you test what you heard on Sunday? Did you take down your notes and then go back and say, Pastor preached this this Sunday, let me test if it is right before I receive it. Did you? He says, they were wonderful. To find out whether these things were so. Did we? Why? Because we are not preparing for that day. We are not preparing for that day. Because the purpose of redemption is to make true worshippers of us in spirit and in truth. That's what the church is all about. A set of people who heard the gospel were cut to the heart, repented, separated, baptized, And scripture says they gathered daily. And John, in one of his final letters, writes this as a last verse for today. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children, what? Walking in truth. As we received commandment from the Father. Now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Yes. Verse 6. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that you have heard from the beginning. You should walk in. He says, I've got a set of people here who are walking in truth and walking in love. He says, fantastic. They are true worshippers. Okay. The spirit is right. The word is right. And they are ready. If they were to fall dead today, they would be translated there to receive their rewards. They have nothing to fear. They have nothing to fear because... They're walking right with God. They're living their lives before God.
That's what God is. We are only in the middle of the week. You've got under three days work left. Tomorrow when you go back to work, when you go back to school, when you go back to your offices, how will we work? How will we work? When we go back home, how will we work? How do we deal with the people? Is our heart and our words the same? Is it the same? Does it tally? Does it agree? That's what God is saying. Does it agree? That's why we keep saying the greatest gift God has given the believer is the gift of repentance. Where we put right, start fresh with God. Start fresh with God. Because God is looking for true worshippers. That's the purpose of salvation. Those who will worship Him in spirit and truth. For God is spirit. God is truth. Man, shall we pray? Father, this evening I just thank you, Lord. Thank you for all your children who have come from so many different places. But above all, Lord, we are in your house tonight. I pray, Father, if you come tonight, I pray everyone would be ready. If you tarry to come, we would still walk in that readiness. Allowing your spirit to search our hearts and our hearts to search your word. That our lives, the, our thoughts, our intentions, our attitudes, our words and our works would align with your spirit and with your truth. Teach us, Lord. Teach us and change us. In ourselves, this is not possible. Only you can do it in us and through us. All we can do daily is just come to you and surrender, Lord. And confess, Lord, I was not true today. I was false. I was not true. I was a man pleaser today. I was pretending today. I was not true. That's all we can do, Lord. Change me, Father. Change us. Change us daily. Change us. For we do not want to be men pleasers. We want to please you. So that we can know you are with us. For your word says, Father never left you. Because you always did those things that pleased the Father. And you brought glory to the Father by what you did. We also want to please you. We also want to bring glory to you. Commit everyone in the church today into thy hands. May your hand rest upon them. May your voice speak to them. Everything that needs to be put right in your sight, hidden from man, but nothing is hidden from you, I pray. They will have the courage and the conviction to put it right and start fresh with you. And I pray for the young couple, Lord, that you would be with them. 24 hours time, life will change for them. And I pray they would allow their worship to define their fellowship. Help them. Help us, Lord. Just commit everything into their hands. You brought us all safely into your house today. Pray, Lord, you reach us all back to our homes also safely. 
Thank you, thank you, Lord. We praise you, we worship you, we glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen.